Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 312. Episode 312. So I want to talk to you uh, today about uh, an insight that I got from my son-in-law, Ben Merkel. We were talking the other night, and he made an observation that I think needs to be developed much further. I'm going to use the construct uh, of the Overton window to talk about this, but this idea that that Ben suggested to me uh, riffs off of that the overton window if you if you don't know is a, a the acceptable frame for public discourse so if you move the overton window to the right or to the left what you're doing is sliding the window such that discourse that used to be acceptable is no longer acceptable because you move the window such that certain expressions are now outside the window. And other things, if you move the window to the left, things that were on the right side of the window have now moved out of frame and are no longer acceptable. And things that were to the left of the window are now in the frame. It used to be unacceptable to talk about those things, but now it's acceptable to talk about those things. Uh, this uh, This applies to words. This applies to generalizations. This applies to arguments. This applies to positions. It used to be acceptable, for example, to be an employee of a major American corporation and to say things like, you know, I don't think surgery should be granted to boys who want to become girls or granted to boys who have been told by uh, people that they ought to want to become girls. Now to, today you can lose your you can lose your position as an employee of a major company simply by affirming some politically incorrect uh, sentiment like that. So th- that's the Overton window. Right, so the Overton window has to do with acceptable levels of discourse, and also as I've been arguing for some time, if our goal and one of our goals here in Moscow is to move the theological and cultural Overton window back to the right. And the important principle is that you can't move the Overton window from inside the window. You have to step outside of the frame and pull. You have to drag it. You can't stand inside the frame and push. If you stand inside the frame and push, then you're just being digested. You're just being swallowed. You're just, you're just going along. You have to be transgressive to a certain extent. So if the, uh, if the Overton window needs to move two feet to the right, you need to step outside the frame like six inches to the right and pull. If you step outside the frame five feet to the right in order to get better traction to pull, you're just going to be dismissed and possibly imprisoned. You don't want to be pulling in a 10-pound fish on a five-pound line. So you step outside the frame and you pull by way of setting this up. Uh, the insight that my son-in-law offered is that there's a thing that we should maybe uh, call the Overton vulnerabilities. Overton vulnerabilities. There's certain things that we don't allow from institutions that are outside the Overton uh, vulnerability window. We don't allow them. And 
if anything happens of that nature, then we come down on it like a ton of bricks, right? So what do I mean? Well, let's say there is a molestation case, okay? A molestation case. An older teacher molests a younger student. Let's say a male teacher molests a male child, a 30-year-old teacher and a 10-year-old boy. Let's say that happens. Now, let's say that the teacher is a Sunday school teacher for a Southern Baptist church, okay? Or, contrary-wise, let's say that the teacher is a teacher for the government school system, and the student is a student at the public school. So you have a teacher-student and a teacher-student. You know, we've got two situations. The molestation is the same in both instances. Same level, same degree of grooming, same everything. Well, the public school system is inside the Overton window. And that means that they, it's not that the the teacher couldn't be prosecuted or uh, bad things couldn't happen to him. But what it means is that when that crime is uncovered, let's say it's publicized and uncovered, it is treated as an individual crime. If the crime is uncovered at the Southern Baptist Church, or it could be at the Roman Catholic Church, a priest and a, a, and a altar boy, what happens is it's not only that criminal action is not only prosecuted, which, of course, it ought to be, but that is taken as representative of the entire institution, Roman Catholic Church or the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever. And But just try to imagine, the, if the levels of sexual activity between teachers and students that occurs in the public school system were to occur in the Southern Baptist Church, we would be looking at a mushroom cloud uh, the size of Rhode Island. Every, everybody would go absolutely nuts. And why is this? Well, it's because certain institutions are inside the Overton vulnerability window, and certain institutions are outside of it. Certain institutions outside the Overton vulnerability window have no protection. And so consequently, if they are good, honest, godly, God-fearing institutions, they have to develop a real anti-fragile mentality. They have to they have to grow some tough skin because they're not going to have they're they're not going to have the um, the reason they're they're not going to receive reasonable treatment from an observing public. Always will be God. So, continuing on with episode three twelve of the podcast. As we continue our homartiological researches, we come to the word kakapoyos, kakapoyos, K-A-K-O-P-O-I-O-S. This is a noun meaning evildoer or malefactor, evildoer or malefactor. Remember last week we talked about kakapoyo, poyo is the verb for make or do, so to do evil, to be an evildoer, and kakapoyos is the noun of referring to the evildoer himself. Now, almost all of the New Testament instances are found in 1 Peter. Almost all of them. There's one that's not, but the first one has to do with a false charge of doing evil. And this is how the non-believers slander the godly. Okay? 
the non-believers are the evildoers, and one of the evil things that they do is they charge the godly with being evildoers. Okay, so having your conversation, uh, this is 1 Peter 2.12, having your conversation, that meaning way of life, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, there you go, there it is, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's 1 Peter 2.12. In other words, a time will come when they have to acknowledge that their slander was in fact slander, and they acknowledge our good works in the day of visitation. So something comes down that reveals the, the lay of the land for what it was. Peter says something very similar in the next chapter. It is possible for slanderers to be brought to the point where they are ashamed of themselves. Hard to believe, but it's true. 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, there you go, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So, Peter envisions a day when the slandered are vindicated. And when the slandered are vindicated, they are even vindicated in the, in the eyes of the people who perpetrated the slander. So, in chapter 2, he talks about the day of visitation. They behold and glorify God in the day of visitation. And then in 1 Peter 3, these slanderers are ashamed of themselves. And Peter tells us to submit to the civil authority appointed by God to punish actual evildoers. Christians must not be scofflaws. Christians must not be scofflaws. 1 Peter 2.14, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, there's our word, evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. So the magistrate is there to punish the evildoer, to punish the one who does wrong, and to praise the one who does right. This is in stark contrast to the way our magistrates are currently functioning, which is to praise the evildoer and to punish the one who does right. So Christians, when we suffer, it should be undeserved. When we suffer, it needs to be undeserved. 1 Peter 4, and this is something that comes up multiple times in 1 Peter, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, there's our word, and notice the company it keeps, murderer, thief, and then the next one is, or as a busybody in other men's matters. I like that. Murderer, thief, evildoer, busybody. Don't do any of that stuff. Uh, so when people slander you and say that you are that kind of person, the slander has to be, in fact, slander. It has to, it must be, it must be false. The one instance of uh, use outside First Peter is found in the Gospel of John. Those who had conspired against Christ had brought him before Pilate. And when he started asking questions about it, they became somewhat petulant. They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, and that's our word, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. John 18.30 And this verse is the merest hint. I, I don't think we can claim anything dogmatically. But I think that they had attempted to grease the skids beforehand, and they had an arrangement with Pilate. They were going to bring Christ very early in the morning, and then he would just stamp the papers and they'd be on their way. For various reasons, Pilate started being obstructive, and he asked a question, and their answer is kind of, if he weren't a malefactor, we wouldn't have brought him. 
Like what? There's a hint there that we had a deal, but I won't press the point too uh, strongly. And from this, we learn that not everyone accused of evil doing is, in fact, an evil doer. Christ Himself is accused of being a malefactor. Christ Himself is accused of doing evil. God don't never He's God. So, continuing on with the podcast, this is episode three twelve. Still is. We haven't finished 312, so we're still in 312, all right? So uh, my book review this time is uh, a book by uh, Jennifer Glancy, Jennifer Glancy. It's an Oxford University Press book, and it's, it's a scholarly work, but it's full of information. It's called Slavery in Early Christianity, Slavery in Early Christianity. Uh, she does quite a good job. I don't, I don't follow all her conclusions or all her speculations, but she knows the literature very, very well. And it's a very thorough treatment of what slavery was like in the Greco-Roman world. In order for Christians to talk about slavery, we have to distinguish between slavery as it was regulated and governed in the Mosaic economy because there you have a pre-existing institution, somewhat like polygamy or the system of blood avengers, where God is giving people like that a system of law, and the system of law that he places upon them is designed to ameliorate the uh, natural excesses of their previous way of doing things. But the laws themselves were holy, righteous, and good, and so the laws that permitted slavery and the laws that regulated it and the laws that determined the circumstances under which a slave had to be set free and how that was to happen, all of that, that's Mosaic slavery, Old Testament stuff. In the New Testament, the slavery of the Roman Empire was pagan from top to bottom, front to back, side to side. It was a pagan, heathenish system. and. The Christians were going out into that world and preaching the gospel. And when they preached the gospel, slaves became Christians, and masters became Christians, and men became Christians, and women became Christians. And you had this horrifying, challenging, and exhilarating situation where you had a large number of people who became Christians from within this culture. And the legal, the entire legal arrangement, the the whole legal system, was arranged in such a manner as to not permit you to do anything about the slavery. So, for example, a male slave had no rights of paternity at all. No right. He he could not be legally a father. He had no rights of paternity at all. Another feature of Roman slavery is that masters had absolute sexual access to their slaves however they wanted it, whenever they wanted it. And so consequently, a, a, a slave was not in a legal position to resist or say no to sexual advances or sexual advantage-taking on the part of masters. And the law backed the masters up. Not only was this the case, but it would, nobody thought anything of it. In other words, it was just simply expected that that's the way it was going to be. And so, you, you can imagine how this would make uh, body life in the, in the Christian church 
pretty festive. And, and you can see how radical Paul's statement in Galatians is that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. So when you came into the church, the slave was not the, uh, was not the third-class Christian. Uh, in Christ, we were all part of the same body. At the same time, they recognized the social realities of this. You can see that in 1 Timothy 6. You can see that in the book of Philemon. Anyway, if you want to know something about the actual conditions of slaves on the ground and how early Christians thought of this, this book, Slavery in Early Christianity, Jennifer Glancy, would be a good resource.